Podcast World Cabin Studios. Welcome to another episode of The Value, the language of business for those of you seeking to build companies that are scalable, investable, and highly valuable. I'm your host, Kevin Valley, and I just want to know how you guys are doing today. You know, there's a cool feature on my website, thevalue.show, where you could actually click on your microphone, record a voice note, and you could hear your voice in the next episode of The Value. So go ahead, take advantage of that feature. Let me know how you guys feel about a particular episode. Let me know if you have any questions that you want to play on air. Whatever it is, man, go wild, go wild, go wild, go wild. So this week's episode is an inspiring and informative conversation on how to tap into your potential to make change in the space you live in. Tashana's testimony of how life coaching impacted her life and how she has used her experience to empower others. A brief introduction to her Ready, Set, Go coaching model and how it works. The Little Genius Program and Next Step, lifelong educational services and their respective social impacts. Understanding the value of social enterprises. How entrepreneurs can use the cross-subsidization model to meet profit goals while investing in social enterprises. Differentiating between corporate social responsibility and social entrepreneurship and how profit-led businesses can better serve social causes. So, without further ado, and as many words as I fumbled on earlier today, <laughs> I present to you my conversation with Tashana Mullings. So on this episode, we speak to Jamaican pracademic who loves to question orthodoxy. Tashana Indomitable Mullings. Tashana, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Excited to be on your podcast. All right. So before we get into this, I need some definitions, right? Because I've been playing with this phrase for the for the past couple of days. You know, the Jamaican pracademic who loves to question orthodoxy. I've been actually been practicing that as part of my uh, my tongue twisters, right? <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what is the inspiration behind that self identification? Right. Um, so a pracademic is someone who loves academics, but only to the extent that it can be practical in creating solutions for real people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a social entrepreneur. So of course, solutions for me in my professional life usually means dealing with social issues and the people and all the stakeholders that are involved with those issues to literally make life better. I strongly believe that the world can be better and we can make it better. So that's what drives that self-definition of me. Yeah, and what's the the indomitable as your um, your new middle name? What's that about? Well, I don't even know if that's so new. It's getting a bit old on me. I'm shocked when I realize that this year actually makes 10 years since my undergrad. And that's where I got the name. And it wasn't in final year either. So it would have been about 12 years. My classmates started saying, you know, you're really indomitable. So they literally started just, calling me that word. So they'll see me on campus and say, indomitable, indomitable one, you know? Mm. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take that. And it's not indomitable in the sense of, okay, I am just so unbreakable. It's the fact that I've dealt with all of these challenges. And in the face of those challenges, I use my lemons and make lemonade. You know what I mean? When I went on the Young Leaders of the Americas initiative program some years ago, a gentleman that I met on one of the outings, he said, whoa, you're a positive deviant. 
you know, you're from a poor community and you're doing so much. And just with all the negatives that you see, you use the resources that you have. And a lot of people usually think, oh, well, I have to have some money. My parents have to be rich. It's like none of that. I have a brain on top of my head that I can use. And I know some people, you know, that's social wealth. I have a network. And so I use that to create magic. And then when I get the money, then I started mixing the money in there as well. You know. Sweet, so. sweet. And this person who called you a positive deviant, was this um, Glenford Smith, my chance? Glenford Smith was one of my initial mentors okay. whom I met on the Governor General's program. So the Governor General of Jamaica has a program called the I Believe Initiative where he works with Jamaicans who are making changes in their space uh, wherever they live in their communities. And community don't have to mean a physical geographic place. It's just, it might be a community that gathers around that issue, a community in your workplace. Once you're making changes, like you're an extension of the governor general's hand in your community. So that's how I met Glenford. Well, that's not how I met Glenford. <laughs> I met Glenford because he wrote an article in the career section of the Gleaner and I was looking for opportunities, found this article, and it spoke to me. So I wrote him a detailed email about how it spoke to me and how I felt about his work. Then he invited me to the Governor General's program. So I know it's early in the podcast, but if a young person is listening, that's also a cue for you. I mean, people say, oh, can I find a mentor? You know, when you're responding to people, be detailed. But because we're used to social media, where you just click like, or you just write a short comment. Sometimes we don't spend time to be detailed and purposeful in our exchanges. That can win you lots of goodness. Oh, sweet, sweet. So in your intro, which, you know, um, we had recorded separately, you know, we have, we have listed out your accolades, you know, including you being a youth leader, community builder, social development practitioner, as you just alluded to. Also winning the, I don't know if it's 2013 or 2014 Farm Queen competition the Governor General's Award for St. Thomas, your parish, in 2015. You were delegate for President Obama's Young Leaders of the Americas in 2016. You were the top young entrepreneur in the same year, 2016, by Television Jamaica. You are two-time nominee and winner of the Prime Minister's Youth Award for Community and National Development. I'm running out of breath here, listening to this out. And not even to mention that you're... Caribbean Top 30 Under 30 Award recipient back in 2019 when you were, before you turned 30. So <laughs> with all these awards and everything, and I just want to know, like, where's the place that it came from? And I'm thinking that's based on, you know, everything that I know about you. There's a lot of passion for the community in which you you came from, you know, St. Thomas Parish, Jamaica. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned the accolades and I listened back to it and I'm like, oh, okay, wow. That, you know, this has happened. You're like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever, in the sense of when you're passionate about what you do, you're not really doing it looking for awards or accolades or whatever. But people recognize that this is work that is making change and, you know, it's, it's worth being awarded. I remember when I got another award, it was a unsung hero award from Butch Stewart, Butch Stewart that owns Sandals. And I'm like, you know, it was one of his legacy projects. And at that point, I'm like, oh, people award people for this kind of thing. Like it was, it was a totally new phenomenon to me that people are awarded for these kinds of things. I know there are people who look out for the awards and try to kind of stack them up, but I didn't even know that this thing was awarded. I just know that, look, 
when I look at the Planning Institute of Jamaica's statistics that comes out annual, well, I think biannually, I realized that my parish was ranking as the poorest in two back-to-back reports. And I thought, I live here. I see richness in terms of physical resources. I see richness in terms of human resources. And there ought to be a way to unlock this so that our realities can be different. So, so that's how it literally started. When I looked at myself, there were some things that I was not unlocking in terms of my personal greatness. And so I went on a journey and that's how I discovered life coaching. And my dad has a dozen kids to give you a bit of a personal story. He had a previous wife before my mom with nine children, one outside and two with my mom who, you know, before my dad passed, they were married. That's the generation. That's the generation. That's the generation. That's the generation. Right. Yeah. And so I thought, what can I do to make a difference in my community? And that's how it all started. So it was a sister from the initial nine that introduced me to life coaching because I was searching. I literally went online and, and was searching, how do you tap into your potential to then make change in the space that you live in, literally? And that's how Next Step Lifelong Educational Services was actually born. Because when I learned life coaching, everything changed for me. My outlook, I had the tools and whatever I needed to be equipped to serve the world. And it doesn't mean that you immediately have everything, but you have a mindset that allows you to come up against everything. And I thought, how can I repeat that for people? And so that's how I started doing academic coaching. And because parents could relate to that. You know, if you say, I'm going to teach your child how to do well in life, you're like, eh. But if you say, I can get your child to get A's on all their exams because they can better manage themselves. They're like, yeah, well, give that to me. So the child comes home. They're doing better with doing their chores. They're keeping on top of their own timetable. And the parent is like, what are you doing? differently with my child. My child has totally changed. And then I thought, I want to do that all the way through the life curve. So I do teen coaching and I also train at the corporate level. So if I don't catch you when you're young, I'll catch you in the middle. And if you get into the workspace and I didn't catch you, I'll catch you there. And then what makes it a social enterprise is that our model is that we're always teaching young people what we do by involving them in the process. So we take interns from the National Training Agency in Jamaica, our trust NTA. So we we perpetually have interns. And if you know anything about working with interns or people that are new to the workspace, sometimes it takes incredible patience to work with them. And you feel like if I just paid somebody, it would be quicker. But we're committed to that apprenticeship experience and teaching young people along the way in our work. This is I think that's really interesting because. From what I understand, you would have started Next Step Lifelong Educational Services out of a school project, Entrepreneurship 101 or something like that. And yeah. at that time, you were facing some of your own personal challenges. So it's, so it's interesting that a life coaching business is born out of a time where you and yourself probably, was it a sort of life coaching for yourself? Like, how did, how did that work? Yeah, so I'm always trying to find how everything that I'm doing can coincide for my benefit and then the people that I serve. The people that I serve are always on my mind. I could be in a room in South Africa learning best practices in leadership and I'm thinking, this is how I'm going to bring it back to Jamaica. This is how I'm going to influence the young people. I'm always thinking that way. So when I was in entrepreneurship 101 class and I heard that we had to do a business plan 
and have a go at the business. I'm like, I'm going to do something that I really want to do. I'm not going to do something to just submit in partial fulfillment for this course. I'm going to do something. I'm a pracademic. Yeah, of course, <laughs> <You know>? pracademic. Yeah. <laughs> right? I've always been a pracademic, even before I could understand what a pracademic meant. And so I started that project at the tail end of my life coaching journey because I saw what life coaching did for me. Because when I was graduating high school, I had my basic CXCs. You know, I pulled through basically to have enough to go into college, but I didn't have glittering CXC scores. See, that is the kind of thing I I liked. Well, not that I liked it. I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't do as well as you wanted to do. But the thing is, looking at your profile, looking at the accolades, meeting you as you are now, knowing you as you are now, one would always assume that, okay, she got straight A's in school. She's always a great student, whatnot. She's just really passionate about the community. And she's, you know, she's mentoring these other kids. She, like, she's she's perfect. But you went through school and, yeah, you, your grades are just all right. You know, my grades are just all right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, like, just all right. Like, when I was in preschool, I was a star, as right. far as I remember what I was told. I was a sports star and I was an academic star. Mm-hmm. In prep school, I don't know what happened. And I just kind of... In prep school, I got averaged out. Like I was just an average student. And that kind of continued through high school. You know, maybe there was some occurrence or whatever. I could remember even in spelling in prep school, I was struggling. So I used to have to say buzziness in order to spell business. <laughs> you know, I, I know I'm buzziness? a business. Like buzziness. And then I said, okay. Because business, I'm hearing B-I-Z, you know, so. Always spelling it wrong. And now the rest is history. So when I did life coaching, though, everything transformed. I became a a straight A student again in uni. So I remember in life coaching, we're not necessarily talking up. We're not learning study skills. But there's something that you learn about self-management and about how you make the best of an opportunity. In terms of managing myself, I understood the kind of learner I was. So when I'm in an experience like this where I can talk, I usually produce better and produce more. When I have a 60-page a report to write, my head goes, oh God. I, have to, I have to just lock down, lock out everybody, cry a bit and uh, frustrate myself, come back and talk to my mentor. But when it comes to doing this, I can just show up, bang, bang, bang. So I know that when I go to a class, I have to show up in that way. I make the best of the moment and ask questions and, you know, that kind of thing, because that's how I learn most. So when I come away from that experience and I'm studying, I have less work to do because I would have done most of the work in the actual engagement. So learning to understand yourself and then how to navigate, and it applies everywhere. It's the same kind of things I teach when I go into corporate. If you want a promotion and you purpose in your heart that you've come to this company to get a promotion and not stay at the bottom, there's a model to follow. And it's not the same cookie cutter model that every single person will do, but there's a certain mindset and approach. If you're solving your boss's boss's problem, they have to promote you because obviously you're doing things and making suggestions that are affecting the bottom line positively. So it, it becomes, it gets to the extent where if they don't promote you, it's actually their loss because they would have you doing some admin function when you could be helping with things that's moving this company to higher levels and improving the bottom line. So they're losing. And if they don't promote you, then you have to leave and go somewhere else where somebody understands your value or start your own business. 
I like that. If you solve in your boss's boss, you're, sorry, your boss's boss's problem. <laughs> boss's boss's boss's. Yeah, you solve, <laughs> solve any boss's problem. I like that. I think it's also just like what you were describing earlier, very customer focused, right? And almost it's like in everything that you're doing, like who's the customer? Who's the main beneficiary? Who's the person? Who's the person I'm trying to provide value for? And how can I provide the most value for them? How do you provide value for, for customers? You solve their biggest problems. You solve their big problems, right? Yes. That's the yeah. impact of value. So just going back to your, your coaching methodology a bit, because you mean you coach people who are kids in primary school age up until grown hardback adults who are in corporate with their own objectives, right? What I want to know, I just want to get, if I could get a little, if I'm at the window peeking at your coaching table, and you, you know, you're walking through with your different clients. I just want to see like, what does that engagement look like? What do those practices look like for the primary school child, the high school slash university student, and then the corporate person? What does that look like? What does the models look like? What I've discovered over the years is that people are people, like regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, especially with uh, working international spaces as well. So, you know, you get experience with working with different ethnicities is that people are people and people are, to a large extent, different yet the same, right? Mm -hmm. And so the model that I use, I call it Ready, Set, Go. And Ready is about mindset. It's about preparing your mindset for the problem that you come to the coaching table with. So if you come with, it, it might be a problem, it might be a challenge, it might be just something you want to work on, or you're doing this thing, but you could do it better. And you bring that to the coaching table. So we'll talk about the mindsets that you have, the mindsets that you need to develop. So that's where it begins. And then set now is where we look at the tools, the models, the systems, and that might include mentors. It might include different kinds of models that I use in my coaching session. I'm not going to give everybody every single thing they can book me <laughs> to, to get the rest of it. All right. right. And then we, and then there's goal. So in the goal session, we talk about how are we going to sustain this? So based on who I am, you're going to feel good in the coaching session. You're going to feel powerful. You're going to feel empowered. But we want to move that outside of a feeling to setting up the systems that will make you actually do it and sustain it when you're no longer working with me. Because I'm going to have to wean you after a while. So do you have a, a friendship circle that you can go to? when you realize that you want to give up. So I'm going to probe you to name those people. If you don't have them, when you look around in your church, in your workplace, in your community, wherever, do you see people that could potentially become a part of that circle? You know what I mean? Like an accountability group sort of thing? Yes, right? Okay. So you have that space that you go to. What are you listening to? You know, different things like that. Um, are there any apps that you use to keep you accountable? So it, it, it would be... It's based on what you are experiencing because not for every it's not for everybody that is about a productivity thing. It it so the the sustainability techniques will vary based on whatever the person comes to the coaching table with. So that's it. Ready your mindset, set setting up those systems, and go. How do you sustain them going forward? So that's my coaching model. Okay, I love it. Love it. It's almost like the four suits of cards kind of theory. So you have the clubs that kind of look like clouds so on the mindset front is the clouds kind of speak to like the big ideas you might have you have the heart which kind of goes with the go 
where you had is like your people, your relationships, who you can connect with. You have the diamonds, which could also be money. There's essentially like the resources, so the tools, the systems that you talk about in set. And well, then you have the spades. Imagine like a spade or like a shovel digging into the ground. It's action. It's like, you know, what is the action plan? And I'm sure that's mm. covered in your your go as well. Sorry, I'm a I'm a big nerd and sucker for frameworks and models and those kind of things. Right, yeah. It helps me to understand things easier and remember them easier. But I like I, I love that too. <laughs> I wanted to share quickly about like one specific tool. I promise I can share it in less than in about two minutes. Share the thing, share the thing. Oh, <laughs> share the thing, share the so, thing. Yeah, so it's called the ambitious target tree. So that's one of the tools that I use. So for the ambitious target tree, it's like a table, and at the top, you have your ambitious target. So that's the thing that you're trying to achieve. That's your ambitious target, right? And it's usually big and glamorous. It can, so it's similar to what they call a BHAG, you know, your big, hairy, audacious goal. Ah, okay. Right, right. And then in your first column now, you will start with all the obstacles that can stop you from achieving this thing, which for a lot of people... In the sessions, it's like a worst place to start. Like, why would you start on such a negative leg? You know, I've gotten that feedback. Like, all the things that can stop me. Because before they come up, you're already naming them. And remember, there, there are others that's going to come up that you actually didn't plan for. And one of the things that my, my mentor talks about is this thing called accusation audit. Right? So it's almost like, you know, when you're doing marketing or sales, yeah. And you know, when you sell a product, they might say, oh, well, I don't want that because whatever, and it may do this and, you know, so you already think about, or you're going to address all the accusations or all the pushbacks. That, that's what an accusation audit is. So you're prepared. So when you go to that space and they say, oh, well, I don't want it because this, you already have an answer already because you're positioned. So you like, you flip back a lot faster, right? And that's one of the secrets that caused my clients to really win because they have thought about so many obstacles that almost any obstacle that comes up is similar to one of the obstacles that they had already recorded. Because this is life. You can put 12 obstacles down and then the 13th one that you didn't think of, you know, is a big one. So there are the, the obstacles. And then there's what you call intermediate objective in the second column. It's the opposite of what the obstacle is. So if you want to increase your sales by... 200% as an ambitious target. And one of your obstacles is that I am no good at marketing, right? It's not my skill. I'm not good at that. Then your immediate intermediate objective could be that you become excellent at marketing. And the you can mean your company, right? So obstacles, in intermediate objectives, and then you have your action plans. What will you do to overcome that obstacle and thus meet that intermediate objective? And you list that action. And then you have a final column for prerequisites. You put them in the best logical order for them to flow. There are some things that are ongoing, which is why I say best logical order, because some things you'll keep doing. It's not that you'll start it and then you never do it again. So that's the ambitious target tree that helps you to work on your ambitious target by looking at all your obstacles, looking at how you'll nullify them, set the goals and set the action plan. And then you'll set up your accountability systems to actually work on them. Because at the end of the day, with any coaching, with anything at all, even if you go to school and you don't use the knowledge, you're still going to be a bomb. So at the end of the day, it's not the coach that's going to move for you. You're going to move. But you have the tools, 
you have the clarity, you have the systems, only thing can stop you is you. Okay. Do you have a template of that ambitious street target that you could share or that I could add to the show notes or so? Oh, yeah. I have a copy of it that you can just add as a link. Yeah, I'll add as a link so people can download. Okay, that's great. All right. Little Genius. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that. Talk to me. So that was one of the big projects that came out of Next Step. I know Next Step works with over 500 students annually. That's awesome. Through teaching and mentorship. I'm sure that's growing by now. But you have this program called the Little Genius Program. What's that about? This interview is helping me to realize that everything I've been doing is coming full circle and, and there's a, a theme and a thread that runs through it, which is also one of the reasons why I like to share in these kinds of ways, because there are people that hoard knowledge that think that if you keep it to yourself, you're going to win and be the biggest thing in the world. But I find that the more I share, the more that comes to me. <laughs> so just to underscore that. And so the Little Genius competition was exactly that. I looked around me. I saw that a lot of the young people around me were not in my community, in my parish. In terms of self-delivery, they were not doing well. They were a bit shy and they didn't want to speak up. And then when I went to town hall meetings, sometimes I was embarrassed by how adults were representing themselves. And, and I'm like, what can I do so people in my parish can express themselves better? Of course, there are people who are doing outstandingly well, don't get me wrong, and making changes all over the globe. But for the most part, I was seeing a lot of young people who were not expressing themselves well. So I thought, you know what? I want to nurture some little geniuses in this parish because, I mean, now I see people walking up to me. People who are finishing high school. They're in sixth form. They're first year in uni. And they're saying, do you remember me? I'm one of your little geniuses. Wow. You know, and I'm like, huh? You know, so already you can see that. How does that feel when that happens? Sorry to cut you, but how does that feel when that happens? Absolutely beautiful. It feels like the mission matters. The mission is working, you know, because usually they're doing projects on their university campus and it's like the ripple effect is happening. You know what I mean? Like I can underscore one person, Damore McQueen. I remember when he came to me, he was nice. I know Damore. Yeah. I know Damore. Yeah, I think, he, uh, I think we connected on um on IG. Yeah, I know Damore. Okay, go on. Sorry. Yeah, Damore is one example. I met Damore at nine years old. So full of passion, you know, but he's trying to figure out the world and all of that. And so he dropped out of the Little Genius competition quite early. He didn't even make it on the final night. But we have character building sessions with them for six to eight weeks before they hit the actual stage. Because just to be clear about what the Little Genius show is and then finish the story with Damore. It's basically a program where they learn self-esteem development and they learn public speaking skills as the main tool to develop their self-confidence and self-esteem. And then on the night of the show, they are judged on critical thinking and they also deliver a public speech presentation, a very brief one, three to five minutes maximum. But they're all eight to 11 year olds and they speak to the issues at their level. So whether we're talking about crime or agriculture, and they can talk about it. I want to see a Jamaica where my mommy don't have to put up burglary bars and my brother died by the gun when I was only five and now I don't have a big brother. I mean, they can talk about the issues. And so we've been doing that since 2013 as an annual show. Even in COVID, we did it online. And so Damar came at nine so passionate and he dropped out. But he remembered the gems 
from the character building sessions. And one day I went to his high school, which was, happens to be my alma mater, Martley High School. And I was sharing with some young people. And I said, who's brave enough to come up here and do an impromptu speech? And Demore said, I'll come. So he did a speech. I gave them a difficult topic about something about economics. And I said, I bet nobody can make a speech on this one. And he came up and said, I can do that. And he gave a speech and he brought the house down. And I'm like, oh, my God, young man, you are brilliant. And he said, I am brilliant because of you. And I looked at him and said, what? Because, I mean, I'm thinking, I don't even know this boy. What is he talking about? Because I didn't remember him because he was so grown and tall by then. And he said, I was in the Little Genius competition and I've been living my life on those gems that I learned from there. And he's like, wow. And then I said, he wanted to do more because he was doing well in his academics but wasn't really involved in anything. And I said, we can make you a leader. If that's something you want to work on, we can do it. Because he was saying, I admire how you're a leader. And I said, let's do it. Let's work. Join two clubs in your school. And whichever one you're more drawn to, focus on that one. Volunteer every time when an opportunity comes up, people are going to start seeing you as a leader. And guess what? They're going to vote for you when there's a voting opportunity. And he did that. He became the head boy. He became the youth mayor for St. Thomas. And he's studying right now in Canada. And it was all curated. So I'm telling you. And Damore is just one, many examples. I could literally, if I thought about it, if I said I could tell you at least 80 examples of literal young people who have a story like that, that we have had direct one-to-one, it wouldn't be a lie. No, I really know that story really. Um, it made my pause raise, especially just, I mean, I never met Damore personally, but I know I interacted with him something, maybe some business pitch competition somewhere, something. But I know we are connected on social media. I know I was a part of some live show that he was participating in. But yeah, man. You know, he's not on a leash anymore. You know, they get to a point where, okay, you're ready for the world. If you yeah. buck it so too hard and it's hurting, I'm right here. You know, you can come back to home base and then go again because he's ready. You have a quote that I really love. It says, there's nothing wrong with Jamaica that cannot be fixed by what is right with Jamaica. Yeah. So I got that from the I Believe initiative. It's the mantra that we are led by. And again, that coincides with everything that I'm about. It started in my community when I looked around and I saw teenage pregnancy. I saw drug abuse. I saw poverty. I saw lots of things that I didn't like. But I also saw great things. I also saw that Paul Bogle, one of our national heroes, is from St. Thomas. I also saw that in terms of Jamaica's independence, a lot of that fight and that struggle would have originated and been driven from my parish. I also saw that we have rich water resources. I also saw that we had talented young people that if somebody just could help for them to tap into that talent. So there's nothing wrong with my hometown that cannot be fixed by what is right. And I thought that the best thing I could do is start demonstrating this possibility. And I remember, again, when I was on the wildlife program and I pitched, they said, you have an amazing model, but how can you multiply several Tishanas? So I literally, it was when I went to Morocco on another program, again, to teach best practices in youth development. The people that brought me there, they have this thing called the Masterpiece Club. I came back to Jamaica. I said, I want to establish a Masterpiece Club, but I don't have the time for it. 
So I went to Damore and I said, Damore, I want you to have international profile and get work done in the international space. I am giving you this big thing to run. And he looked at me like, whoa. And I said, I believe in you and you're doing it. I'm right behind you. You're going to be the face of it. My face is not going to be seen in Masterpiece. You are the one that will run this. And he's running it up to today. You know what I mean? And almost Take at the point. More, boy. Right. Yeah, like he wants to give it over. So I'm just working that example as one example to keep this conversation focused. Yeah. Right. I really love the social side of what we're talking about here. And I mean, we just by using Zamora as an example alone, we see the the benefit that social entrepreneurship, social investment can um can reap for an economy, for for businesses and whatnot. And before I get a little deeper into social entrepreneurship, because there's profit motive in social entrepreneurship as well. It's not just about doing things just to feel good. Uh, it has to make sense financially as well. I just want to kind of round off on your vision for St. Thomas, because I know you are happy about development projects that took place, or construction of a highway, town center, but you also want to build out mini innovation lab? Yeah, as you've rightly said, and anyone from Jamaica that's listening to this and know what's going on, so yes, there's an urban center that's coming. Yes, the highway is being built. But I also feel that if our people are not ready for this kind of change and development, we're just going to have investors from all over Jamaica, people in the diaspora, wherever, coming to invest, own all the lands and property, while the people of St. Thomas just continue picking up the crumbs. And I don't want that, which is why... I want to look at implementing a program that helps our people to tap into their innovative skills so they can solve the social issues around them and they can make some good money to build legacy for themselves and their families. Because I'm all for building good businesses that create a legacy and make good money. I often say there are too many issues in the world for you to go into business just for profit, right? There are too many social issues to go into the business just for profit. So I believe that you must earn from what you're doing, and I believe that strongly, but I also believe that you must solve the issues around you. And this is why I want to build out the social innovation space so young people who are coming from uni can build something that becomes the next big thing. I see a lot of young entrepreneurs now in Jamaica, their businesses listing on the stock exchange. If you're paying attention to what is happening in this space, I want a young person from St. Thomas to not say, oh, well, there's no IT company over here. There are only small peddlers like barbershops and cook shops. So there's no opportunity for me here unless I'm working in a bank or a government agency or I'm going to open a little shop. No, you can incubate something that becomes the next big IT company and it originates in St. Thomas, especially in alignment with all of this development that is coming to that space. You know, and th this is why... You have to really think innovatively and out of the box. I'd gotten this award from USAID for Rural Regeneration. Social Entrepreneur Award? Yes. Rural Regeneration. Okay. Okay. Right. 2018. In 2018. Okay. In 2018. Right. So I didn't realize that the work I was doing in St. Thomas was rural regeneration because I was bringing innovative ideas and best practices into a rural space for people to innovate with the tools and the resources that they had to regenerate communities. 
But I didn't even have that verbiage and that language in around what I was doing. You know what I mean? I was teaching some entrepreneurs and realizing that there are people who are collecting tin and all of these things and making Dutch pot and all you know? And then somebody made this thing called a breadfruit roaster Ooh. using the I same love breadfruit, ro roasted breadfruit. Ooh. Talk to me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so they're using the same kind of technology that they used to make the Dutch pot to create something that you can roast your breadfruit and it's designed specifically to roast a breadfruit. Ooh. You know what I mean? Mm. I don't think that idea would have come from anywhere uptown. So there are all these gifts and jewels and things in the rural space that we can tap into. And, and that's what my working center must, has been all about. Hmm. Building community well through rural regeneration. I love it. Okay. So just to give people um, just a quick definition of social entrepreneurship, people probably know it already. And it's something I, of course, I pulled from my research on the um, good old internet. So broadly speaking, a social business is a form of business striking a balance between social objectives and financial goals situated somewhere between profit maximization and the non-profit sector. All right. So as you were talking about just now, you would have done some work which includes supporting farmers in essentially building the capacity to so they could access financial services and strengthen their community-based enterprises. What was that work like? Yeah, so that was my very first job. When I left uni, I got a job at the St. Thomas Credit Union, ah. but it wasn't to work in regular banking. It was to work on a project for a bid that the credit union had submitted to help farmers to strengthen their capacity to access financial services. So a lot of institutions were not giving loans to farmers, not only because they didn't want to, but because they're doing business and it's a risk to lend to a population where the, there's never complete certainty, but you want to minimize your, your risk. What we were doing is strengthening their capacity, helping them to understand financial tools, financial language, and finding out what their financial needs were by going into communities in every nook and cranny of St. Thomas where we could find farmers. And then we actually gave loans to some of these farmers to actually see how it works. And since engaging in that project space, my degree was in psychology, but then I went into this development project. I haven't looked back. I thought I was, would have been a psychologist with a PhD in psychology by now. But what I do, I bring my psychology skills into the space to understand the people I work with in the development space. And I went to University College of London and did a master's degree in development administration and planning to strengthen what I'm doing. And it really started from that first job at the credit union in doing a development project. I know you recently graduated from a, doing another degree that was in financial management or so. No, I did development administration and planning at the University College London. That's mm -hmm. what I did my master's degree in. I'm currently doing a postgraduate degree in education and training because everything I do is education. So it's just one of those bucket list things to become. You're really like schoolboy. <laughs> <laughs> you're really um, you're really a academic. <laughs> yeah, right. So and and while I'm in school, I'm consistently working mm -hmm. and. As I think about doing teaching practice and so on, I'm just thinking about the fact that I want to bring the education that usually people in the upper class get to deep rural communities and also into inner city communities. Because one thing I learned in my dissertation 
is that while poverty is usually more widespread in the rural space, poverty is usually deeper in the inner city, right? So sometimes when people think about poverty, they think about rural. There's deeper levels of poverty. Because when you're in country, you can pick two mango and get breadfruit from your neighbor and, you know, all of this kind of thing. But when you're in Kingston, usually what the young people do is go and rob a shop. And if that don't work out today, then everybody's just hungry, you know? So how can we educate them in a way where they're not left with limited options? So in the uptown schools, they're doing theater and drama. Um, they're doing swimming and all these other things that kind of undergirds the academic process. How can I bring all of those things to a rural space by getting a grant, paying some teachers that don't have any job, engaging some retired teachers so we have that experience in the mix, and bringing that to the rural space. So while I'm studying in my postgrad, these are the things I'm thinking about and writing in my projects through academic. So there's this triple bottom line approach that you know it speaks to people, planet, and profit. It alludes to the social enterprise model, right? So profit, well, profit, as you know, is you know how you make money. And I think you cover the you cover the people in terms of you know the stakeholders of a business, right? And the stakeholders of a business are separate from the shareholders of a business, right? The shareholders are just part of the stakeholders, but other stakeholders will be the people outside, the customers, your suppliers, just the community as a whole, right? And then, of course, you know, the planet, which goes without saying. And I think we did a good job of talking about how the social initiatives which you spoke about benefited the country, benefited economies or whatnot. We didn't even talk about the work you did in, in, um, in England with the Ubelin initiative where you helped some, you know, you help people of color get their businesses off the ground and all of these things, right? Mm-hmm. But we haven't really spent much time talking about how to make social enterprises profitable. You know, where's the return? Where's the, where's the value to the shareholders of these enterprises? You know, can you mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So in the third sector, I mean, Kevin, you gave everyone the definition of social enterprise already. So the social enterprise space is usually referred to as the third sector. So in the sector, we talk about a triple bottom line And indeed, we have spent a lot of time talking about people and the issues that they face and helping to resolve the issues for disabled communities, children in need and whatever. So that's one part of it to make sure that you're serving those people. In Jamaica, a model social enterprise that people look at a lot is called Deaf Can Coffee. So it's deaf people that make the coffee, deaf people that run the coffee shop. So they are providing employment for the deaf, right? But you buy the coffee when you go there, <laughs> you understand? Right. And they have to get a salary. And they're also listed on what in Jamaica is called the social stock exchange. And to list on the social stock exchange, you need to get your act together. You need to be clear about your numbers. You need to be clear about what's in all your financial statements and understand that and making sure that you're actually having a good turnover. And so, for example, in my business, we practice in terms of the profit piece now of the triple bottom line, we practice what is called a cross-subsidization model. So I'm serving products and services to some disadvantaged populations. And I also serve populations that are in a position where they can afford at a higher price point. Right. So if I know that I have an overall income target 
of, let's just say, for example, 100,000 US dollars, maybe there's a product that I can sell for 20,000 US dollars on a lower cost to a company in the rural space that that's what they might be able to afford and rebrand the same thing and sell it to somewhere else that can afford it for 80,000. And in all, I will meet that income goal. And sometimes what you do, you sell in a way where you supplement the income. So somebody else who is buying from you know that this is a social buy and that what they're buying is the value of what they're getting plus they're making a contribution to this disadvantaged group. So it's not that you're being unethical. Everything is full disclosure because in the social space, as we're developing that space in Jamaica, the social enterprise working group, we try to, to teach as we go along and letting people know that your social dollar goes a far a further way. So when you buy from a social enterprise, you're not only getting this product, but you're also resolving a social issue. So a lot of people will spend more understanding what they're buying into. And then that takes us into the conversation about social capital and also the economic benefits that you get from social capital. This is the kind of discussion that we end up going into with like the policy people and the people in government and the people that should undergird the ecosystem in the social space. Because if we have 100 less criminals in our society, it's more money for us. It's less people getting robbed. It's less people that's not starting a business that could fuel the economy because of fear that they're going to get robbed. So it's just that it's kind of difficult to calculate sometimes what economic benefit you get out of this social capital. And that is also something that a gentleman that runs the social entrepreneurship unit at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica. So Dr. Knife, I hope it's not you, Tech, and I'm not mixing it up right now, but Dr. Knife is the man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we know where Dr. Knife is from. So Dr. Knife is working with different consultants and people in government to work on a calculator so we can calculate how much monetary economic benefits we're getting from people who are contributing to the social space. Yeah. I know I've said a lot. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, I, you know, because I went down a, a slight rabbit hole while um, researching this in preparation for our conversation today. And it makes a lot of sense, right? So just from the practical, sorry, the practical side, right? <laughs> Yeah, just from the uh, practical side, I would spend more money for Defcan coffee. Could be the same quality coffee than I would for a regular cup of coffee with the same same quality if I know that hey, I'm supporting this group of people, right? And then just thinking a little bigger, I could see why purpose-led businesses, and you know, some research have shown purpose-led businesses have been shown to perform better than similar counterparts who aren't purpose-led. There's even a report by, again, I went healthy. There's even a report by this consulting firm, Deloitte, that spoke about it, you know, six drivers of business value that actually act in favor of purpose-led businesses. So the first thing is brand differentiation. A brand that's differentiated by the point that we're trying to do good in the world is going to have a higher value than a similar brand providing similar products or services that is just in it for the money, right? Talent attraction and retention. If you enroll your employees in a way where they care about what you're doing as a company, 
you know, it's going to be hard for somebody else to push them away for a couple thousand dollars more, you know, and that, mm-hmm. and that employee is going to be that much more driven and that much more engaged and that much more productive as a result, right? Yeah. Innovation. You have operational efficiency because you want, because if your business is, exists to serve people, you want to make sure you're doing it right. You don't want to half fast on it or anything like that. Then of course you have things like risk mitigation and, and um, capital access and market valuation. Now there's so many ESG is a thing now, you know, in a time of global warming where places like UK is getting hot, Canada is hot, you know, those sort of things, pollution and all these things. We're trying to, people are finally trying to do things right. And people are looking to spend dollars on firms that are doing things right. So yeah, I think there's um, definitely a big case there for um, social entrepreneurship. But- yeah, and, and just to make a, a quick distinction for people who, may be wondering or might be saying, okay, but businesses, a lot of businesses have a corporate social responsibility. It's different when you're a social enterprise because your social mission is at the core of your business. When you have a CSR strategy, it's almost like you're here to make profit selling whatever you're selling. And by the way, sometime you might sponsor a football match. But for a social enterprise, at the core of your business, whatever social purpose you're serving is always serve every day, all the time, in the way you operate your business. It's not a, by the way, let's do a little project. That's mm. CSR in a regular profit-driven company. So, for example, if DefCan stops employing deaf people, it wouldn't be a social enterprise anymore. There are some companies that a part of their profit consistently goes towards a certain need in society, and that's just the setup of their business. So there are various setups of social enterprises, just to underscore that. Yeah. So I just want to get your take on it, right? So in for me, for in what I do in you know, through business valuation or helping companies to source capital, you know, put them in front of investors or whatnot. I like to work with bit on purpose-led businesses. I because I believe that we are all in business to maximize our contribution to the world, right? It's bigger than us. And we do that. I mean, the products and services that we provide is just a vehicle for that. You know, us doing this podcast right now is just is just a vehicle for us to try and do it at scale, right? Yeah. But for folks listening right now, let's mean you're an existing business, you know, existing pro-profit business. Yeah, you, you probably you might sponsor a football match, just like you say, or you know, you might you might put a big twenty-five thousand dollar check and you hand it to some poor person and you take a picture and you put them in the papers. But how can they do better? What can they do now, you know, to even somehow transition into social enterprise? We talk about this a lot too in the social enterprise working group. We're not necessarily saying to the whole world, everybody change your company from a limited liability or a sole trader and everybody register as a social enterprise. Right. Because, you know, mm-hmm. some, of our, some of our countries don't even yet have, you can't go to the company's office and say, I want to register as a social enterprise. Some Caribbean countries don't yet have that. I don't think any other Caribbean country has that as yet. I think Jamaica will be pioneering with this. But if you are purpose-driven, in the way you approach business right. and you identify, especially like a particular group of people or a set of communities that, and I'm using communities in the broader sense here. If you serve them in some way by the way that you do what you do. So if anybody is a, 
young entrepreneur in training or whatever can find this information useful, then in doing what you are doing, for example, in your business, Kevin, even though you might not be a social enterprise, you are purposeful in your approach. That's right. Yeah. To understand that you don't just exist only because you want to make money or you want to make profit. So I think it's a useful thing to say, even if you don't think you are cut out to be a social enterprise, at least have a deeper purpose in your approach to business than just, okay, I need to make profit, the bottom line. Because for me, some days it becomes a little bit rough. I'm like, if I stop working with all these interns and apprentices and it's going to turn off a, a headache, you know what I mean? But I don't want to do that because I'm so driven by, by the cause that I'm serving. Lowering unemployment in my community in Jamaica by engaging these apprentices and making them so much more employable. By the time they leave, some of them get jobs and they leave earlier than the apprenticeship time finishes. And, and we celebrate that because that's what we're building them up towards. They leave with glowing resumes. You know what I mean? And, and we're committed. To that process because we are a social enterprise. I love it. You know, this has been building community wealth with Tashana Indomitable Mullings. Tashana, is there, before we go, is there anything that you'd like to make sure we get out to the audience that we may not have covered today? Yeah, um, just to use the word that I do in the UK as a quick example, because I've learned a lot in that piece of work as well. So I work in an organization called Ubele Initiative, they're basically an African diaspora-led, we call ourselves an infrastructure plus organization right. that empowers Black and minoritized groups. We work specifically with Black and minoritized people in the UK. And what we're doing is helping them to build their capacities so they can do more in their spaces. And just this morning, we were in a meeting where we were talking about collective intelligences and the power of when small groups and collectives work together, the systemic shift that it can make. You know, just to use all of that to say, if you are running a business and there are issues related somehow to your product or service, for example, if you sell sanitary napkins, that's your business, you produce and manufacture that. There are so many issues around period poverty and different things. So if you can give an air or lend a hand to any issue that somehow relates to your product or service, that is something that I want to encourage every business owner to do, even if you don't become a full-fledged social enterprise. Yeah. But look at the issues in your communities, especially if it's something that relates to what you do and see what you can do about it. And to finally say, the world is full of too many issues to go into business only to generate profit. I love that. So, of course, you can get on to Tashana. The best place to reach Tashana is on um, LinkedIn. You can check out her website at nexxstepp.com. That's nextstep.com. Spell it wrong. And you're probably spelling it right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tashana, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Podcast World Cabin Studios, there you have it. Building Community Wealth with Tashana Mullings. Subscribe to The Value at thevalue.show. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure to leave us that five-star review and a lovely write-up. And feel free to check out the voice note feature 
on that website, thevalley.show. Let us know how you feel. With that, Podcast World, Cabin Studios, we are out. We'll see you next episode.